the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good evening, and welcome to the Business of Giving. I'm Denver Frederick, and we're going to begin tonight by going to Hollywood, specifically the Entertainment Industry Foundation, which has been Hollywood's partner in all kinds of philanthropic endeavors for 77 years. And my first guest will be their president and CEO, Nicole Sexton. And it is this unique mix of cause, purpose, and power Mm -hmm. around a singular board table that allows EIF to do some pretty extraordinary things. One of those is to do what is called a roadblock, which is when all network channels across, uh, across all digital platforms and streaming platforms for the major networks are blocked for one important message. And there have been some listeners who have mentioned that one group of nonprofit organizations that have not been on the program have been think tanks. So we'll try to profile a few, both liberal and conservative, and we'll start tonight with the Progressive Roosevelt Institute and their president and CEO, Felicia Wong. Policymakers right now, they spend most of their time you know, actually campaigning for office, staying in office, or you probably know this from your own life, spending all day in meetings, Mm -hmm. trying to build alliances. That really means they don't have a tremendous amount of time to look at all the data, to think hard about, hmm, what would be the best way to increase wages or to, you know, close the racial wealth gap or any of the kinds of things that we work on at the Roosevelt Institute. There just isn't enough time in most politicians' days to do that. So um, they often rely on think tanks to really get some of those ideas. But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, August 25th. College students who participate in fun, peer-directed activities that openly and honestly address mental illness are significantly less likely to stigmatize people with these conditions, according to a new study led by researchers at Indiana University. Mark and Lynn Benioff gave $25 million to create the University of California at San Francisco Benioff Center for Microbiome Medicine. Year-over-year investment returns for private and community foundations fell into negative territory in 2018 after posting double-digit gains in 2017. The trade war between the U.S. and China has led to an unlikely side benefit. Some food banks in New York are bursting at the seams. The state's largest regional food banks have been taking and distributing additional food that the U.S. government has bought from farmers in response to China and other countries levying retaliatory tariffs against the U.S. goods. A majority of nonprofit organizations struggle to effectively measure and demonstrate the impact of their work, a report from Oracle NetSuite finds. While 76% said it was a top priority for their organization, only 20% believed they were very effective at demonstrating outcomes. And finally, Lava May uses a mobile trailer with showers and bathrooms to offer basic hygiene services to homeless people. To bring the services to others, it launched a free kit so anyone can start similar services in their city. And this idea is spreading across the country. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back to speak with Nicole Sexton of the Entertainment Industry Foundation right after this. Top companies have now begun to discover a reliable source for skilled new talent, and they're finding great success with employees who are productive, engaged, and innovative. Explore the country's largest untapped talent pool, 24 million Americans with disabilities. The National Organization on Disability is the leading partner for companies looking to accelerate their disability employment efforts, attract, hire, and retain. Learn more at NOD.org. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at bizofgive and at facebook.com slash businessofgiving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. 
It was back in 1942 when Samuel Goldwyn, along with pals such as Humphrey Bogart and James Cagney, founded what was to become the Entertainment Industry Foundation. And ever since then, EIF, as it's commonly known, has been the entertainment community's trusted partner in philanthropy. And it's a delight to have with us tonight their president and CEO, Nicole Sexton. Good evening, Nicole, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Good evening. Nice to see you. Share with the listeners some of the history of EIF and the unique role the organization plays. Uh, Sure. So one important founder that we left off was Joan Crawford. There was a woman in the mix. Um, EIF was founded to be the collective voice of the entertainment industry at the time. So key to its architecture were Sam Goldwyn and the Warner Brothers in that they brought two studios together. And from there, actors from both studios, uh, as time has gone on, agencies have played a role in our board makeup. Uh, Television networks also have a seat on our board. And it is this unique mix of cause, purpose, and power Mm -hmm. around a singular board table that allows EIF to do some pretty extraordinary things. One of those is to do what is called a roadblock, which is when all network channels across uh, across all digital platforms and streaming platforms for the major networks are blocked for one important message. And so that's often used for education, for healthcare, um, uh, particularly with Stand Up to Cancer. But that is, is the kind of power that a board like ours uh, can um, – take advantage of or harness, I like to think of the board as the NASDAQ of philanthropy <laughs> in in Hollywood. Yeah, well, that is quite extraordinary. Would the primary focus of the organization <clears throat> be supporting Hollywood, and by that I mean the greater Los Angeles community or the causes of the celebrities who live and work there? Actually, it's a little of both. In mm-hmm. the beginning, one of the first efforts was a war bond effort. There was also a push to start a community arts fund, which still exists today, the L.A. County Community Arts Fund. And Permanent Charities, as we were originally known, was the seed funder for that effort. Um, as time has marched on and celebrities are using their platforms to take up more individual and personal causes, there has been a role for EIF to play in helping to support their administrative needs in whatever cause they choose to to impact. So we might handle all of their uh, fundraising back end. We might handle all of their reporting and filing. They can start what's called a fund with us, which is essentially an account in which they raise all of their money and deploy all of those assets towards whatever cause or interest they have. And that's called fiscal sponsorship. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are a lot of influential people in Hollywood who are passionate about their cause. And beyond fiscal sponsorship, um, they want you to get really fully behind it. And I know Mm -hmm. you can't do everything. So how do you determine which ones to get behind and which ones you have to say uh, no to? You know, there are a lot of things that will seem to come together for the perfect storm. Literally, in the case of crisis response and environmental response, um, EIF has been the administrative partner to the entertainment industry for the past 18 years, Mm -hmm. starting with Hope for Haiti Now. And there have been, unfortunately, uh, numerous events of um, of a grand scale in which the entertainment community wanted to step up and either raise funds or awareness. The most recent effort that we supported was uh, the devastating wildfires throughout California, and we helped first responders with some equipment needs as well as uh, local animal rescue and supporting families who had been displaced by the wildfires across the state. But the whole entertainment industry uses its um, opportunity and uses its power to help message, to help develop messages, to place messages. So it it really has um, the ability to move funding and awareness along at 
kind of a record pace, which is a real asset. However, um, you you know, it is important to make sure that all interests are aligned, as you said, so that you can take advantage of the of the full impact of the organization. Uh, there are so many great causes out there. There are so many uh, worthy organizations that would love to have a little bit of spotlight. Our board has chosen in the healthcare space, stand up to cancer and cancer as their focus. Um, and um, and then outside of that, we usually have two or three kind of cornerstone projects. Mm-hmm. Despite having been around for these 77 years that mm-hmm. we've talked about, I think you've generated over a billion dollars in philanthropy for worthy yes. causes. You have not been fully understood or appreciated by some, even in Hollywood. And I know as part of your charge, Nicole, you were asked to reimagine and rebrand the organization when you came on board in 2017. What have been some of the things you've been doing in this regard? Well, the feeling has always been that the causes should stand before the organization. So in the case of Stand Up to Cancer as a program, there are very few people, unless you're inside of Hollywood or in in the industry in some way, who would recognize that EIF is actually the organizing body that is behind the program, which is Stand Up to Cancer. Uh, The same thing with our disaster response. Mm -hmm. We have something that will help to uh, identify and tell the story of what we're trying to impact, but the Entertainment Industry Foundation is not often the thing that people think of when they think of of giving. So uh, one of the things that we've done is create programs that have a, a marquee or a brand that we can use as the way to solicit funds and get people excited about what we're trying to impact. One of the things that we've done since I have been with the organization is to bring back fiscal partnership as a way of helping those who work in the entertainment field realize the full uh, the the full vision of their philanthropy and not every person in the entertainment industry or otherwise needs to start their own nonprofit in order to have deep impact. You can partner with an organization or you can set up a fund and have just as much impact without some of the administrative uh, hurdles that you'd have to go through and you can get started right away. And, And I think for many in the entertainment field, their time and talents and their vision is is much better spent on being creative and figuring out how to use their platform and their voice versus filing paperwork and making sure that they've um, that they've filled out their 990s correctly. Yeah, right. So, no, I do applaud um, you for that. I'm, I was thinking so that's that one of the things we've done. We have about a million and a half nonprofit organizations uh-huh. in a country of a bit over 300 million mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And that's a one to 200 ratio, which is a bit crazy. And I do know that with a lot of these entertainers, they're worried about their reputation. Mm-hmm. And they can be the most upright, upstanding citizens mm-hmm. and do a job, but they're not doing the back end properly. And it come back, it can come back to bite them, and to be able to take that off their plate is really a great. Uh, it's really helpful. It also, you know, a lot of of really extraordinary, well intentioned, and super smart, talented individuals hire a cousin mm-hmm. or an aunt or a brother who is also well intentioned, but just perhaps not equipped to manage all of the aspects. You know, philanthropy, it's a business. And um, and so there are expectations. Right. And, and the IRS, there, IRS is an agency. That's right. <laughs> that's right. So, um, so it is, I think, a relief to many. Um, we've had some, some good success, you know, and, and just as you said, the most well-intentioned individuals can get tripped up and in the world of social media, it only takes kind of one tweet to start a firestorm. So it is important to know what you're doing, to partner with people who can help you make smart decisions and to um, to protect yourself as much as you can. Let's talk a little bit more about Stand Up to Cancer because mm-hmm. perhaps that's the best known mm-hmm. of all the programs that, that you have uh, generated. Um, how did that get started and what's on tap for this year? 
So Stand Up to Cancer is in its um, – it's going into its 12th year. Mm-hmm. It's in its 11th year now. So its 12th year it will have um, another one of its um, kind of groundbreaking roadblock telecasts. Uh, the, it was founded by 10 women who were uh, all close friends or had worked with Laura Ziskin – and she was suffering from cancer, and she was really the driving force behind their push to do something unexpected. And they've been, these extraordinary women have been incredible in their ability to not only take advantage of the tools of the Entertainment Industry Foundation and the, the community in which the foundation works, but also leveraging science, technology, and the pharmaceutical and and uh, science communities to create these dream teams mm-hmm. and really have have put in motion some pretty catalytic research and and had some unbelievable outcomes in a relatively quick period of time. Yeah, you have over a hundred teams that mm-hmm. you have uh, you yes. helped to fund. Um, when is this year's uh, roadblock going to be? It is always um, so. It's every other year, mm-hmm. and it's always in the fall. Okay. So, so about it, correct? Mm-hmm. About a year and some change from now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You talked about disaster relief mm-hmm. a few moments ago, and mm-hmm. you have a signature program around that, which is Music for Relief. Yes. Speak to that. So Music for Relief was started by the band Lincoln Park about 14 years ago. Mm-hmm. And two years ago, when they lost a band member, the members of the uh, um, of the group were struggling with the what's next, not only as professional musicians, but also for their philanthropy. And so they came to EIF to discuss how we might take what they had created and the extraordinary impact that they had had around the world in stepping in when disaster struck and how they might either turn that into a fund or we even discussed at that time sunsetting what what they had built and as they talked as we learned more we realized that EIF had been in the disaster or crisis response business for a number of years but we didn't really have the architecture in place Mm -hmm. so by bringing music for relief into EIF and actually making it our official crisis response program, it allowed us to ramp up really quickly. And the model is um, very similar to other programmatic models that we've created where we have an advisory council of experts in the field. So from agencies and organizations that are on the ground the minute disaster strikes. And they are really at the center of of the success of the program because they speak to our board and they speak to the entire industry on best volunteer opportunities, uh, where there's need for most uh, for um, for financial resource, where they can uh, send supplies or goods or what they should be focusing on, which agencies are doing mm-hmm. the best work and how they can impact them. And it is through their council that the community has been responding, and it, it's worked pretty well. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a relatively new model, but um, I've been so pleased and so moved by the incredible success in the coming together of the industry. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you about one more, and this would be a public awareness campaign, which is Mm -hmm. I Am a Voter. Ah, I Am a Voter is a great campaign. (laughs) Um, So we started that 10 weeks before the 2018 elections. Mm -hmm. And as we all know, there was a great push to increase voter, voter turnout in the midterm elections. There, just as you mentioned, there are a number of organizations. There were a number of organizations that helped to push voter turnout, and I think everybody feels really good about the increase in turnout in 2018. I am a voter is um, 
It is completely apolitical. It is only about inspiring, getting people to register, and uh, and being uh, sure that they have the tools they need, transportation equipment, whatever it uh, it may be, that that there's a place to answer questions so they make it to the polls. Mm-hmm. Our only goal is to get as many people registered and voting um, as we can. So there will be another effort, a more robust effort around 2020 because we have um, the gift of a bit more time and there will be, I think, quite a bit of focus on yeah. the 2020 well, you, elections. You did an awful lot with that already. You had, a, I think, a, over a million dollars of donated space and a billion, billion and a half we, uh, impressions. I we, mean, amazing. We did. There are some, I can take no credit, there are some extraordinary women and men who are behind the effort, who conceived of the idea and then uh, came together and brought others under the tent in order to to create uh, something pretty special in a very short period of time. So, Nicole, are mm-hmm. there any innovations or trends that you're seeing in the Hollywood philanthropic community, the charitable scene, if you will, that could spread to other communities across the country in the near future? You know, um, there are, I think, so many ways to engage the entertainment community. But the first thing that you need to understand is that if it's not authentic, it won't last. Mm -hmm. And people will see right through it and probably not respond well to it. So finding causes um, or aligning yourself with individuals who have already identified causes that have some symmetry with your message or mission, I think is the first and most important thing to do. And where you can, um, you know, pull resources and and have and, and don't be afraid to open up the conversation about doing something that's of mutual benefit because from there I think you can really build a relationship and a partnership with someone um, and it's not so transactional. Yeah, and it seems, at least what I've been able to observe, celebrities are using social media yes. a lot more now a than perhaps more. just showing up at a gala the way they did and are having greater impact. They're having greater impact, and there are you know there are um, virtual meet and greets that you can do with celebrities now backstage at a concert or after an event. They you know they can they can tee up a half a dozen virtual meet and greets, and it feels like you're right there talking to the individual, asking questions. And it's a great way, I think, for um, for people to take full advantage of their time, no matter where they are, and impact causes that they care about. Tell us a little bit about uh, EIF. You're a nonprofit organization. Who mm-hmm. funds you? What are your sources of revenue? So we are funded through our programs. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really do any general fundraising for EIF as an organization, we we build these programs that have impact, and from there we'll have uh, private donors, foundations, corporations. Um, we cover our cost. We run a very lean team, mm-hmm. and uh, and then the rest goes back into the organizations that are doing the great work. Speaking about that lean team. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it like to work at EIF? What is your corporate culture? And what do you think makes it really special? I think that we have some extraordinarily talented individuals. And it's wonderful to see them conceive of an idea and then bounce it around the table and turn it into something kind of magical. And so I feel really blessed every day because I get to surround myself with people a whole lot smarter than than I am. And um, and they, you know, they keep things moving and they keep it fun. There's a lot of joy in our office. Well, that's good. Mm-hmm. What part of your job do you enjoy the most and what do you find to be the most difficult? Um, well, the uh, the most I'll end on a on a on a happy note. The most difficult is being away from New York because that's <laughs> home and well, we like where, to hear that. <laughs> that's where my family and friends are and so that has um, I have not been shy I'm working on it, but I've not been shy about that being uh, a, a pretty difficult move for me. Um, what do I enjoy the most? I really I enjoy the people. Mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy the people. I'm inspired by them. I'm grateful to them. And um, and I'm consistently moved by how invested and creative they are. 
Let me close with this, Nicole. Mm-hmm. Is there any place you would love to take EIF that you haven't gone yet, but at least you're beginning to think about? I think there's a lot of conversation about inclusion and access, and I think that there is a lot of opportunity to get it right in many spheres. We talk about inclusion almost as though it's a kind of a punch word Mm -hmm. because when we talk about it, we talk about it in silos. And so a lot of the programmatic opportunities that we're looking at now are how to break those barriers down because when you work in an inclusive environment or when you're part of an organization or um, or or participate in something that is truly inclusive, nobody looks the same. <laughs> and everybody adds something special to the mix. And I, and I just don't think we're there yet. I think we talk about it a lot, yeah. but I don't think we're there yet. And so if EIF, through using the tool of entertainment in Hollywood and through the wonderful platform that we have, can help to really inspire a uh, um, a dynamic kind of everything in a place and a place where everybody feels accepted and included, that would be great. Yeah, it sounds to me what you're trying to do is change the mindset first change and the, the mind- behaviors will follow. Yes, that is what we're trying to do. More to come. More to come. Stay tuned. Well, <laughs> Stay Nicole tuned. Sexton, the president and CEO of the Entertainment Industry Foundation, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. For people uh, who want to get involved in any one of these causes, Stand Up to Cancer yep. or the others that you're behind, tell us a little bit about your website and some of the info you got on it. Oh, so eifoundation.org has all of the history of our organization. It also has all of, we mentioned, our philanthropic partners where we offer fiscal sponsorship. So we have everything from a project that is doing extraordinary work around educating young women in South Africa to a a young entertainer who wants to help kids on the street in the San Francisco Bay Area. So there are a lot of programs and there's a lot of opportunity to be a part of some impact. It's also really great to see what people are really investing themselves in. And then, of course, Stand Up to Cancer and Music for Relief are also on our website as well. Along with your education program. Along with our education program. Well, thanks, Mm -hmm. Nicole. It was a real pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much. I'll be back with more of the Business of Giving right after this. Youth opportunities, strong communities, a healthy planet. Sounds like the work of social entrepreneurs. Yes, but it's also the work of artists. Upstart Collab is a new national collaboration connecting artists, impact investors, and social entrepreneurs. Upstart's mission is to create opportunities for artist innovators to deliver social impact at scale. Upstart is committed to promoting artists as innovators, unleashing capital for creativity, and enabling sustainable creative lives. Find out more at www.upstartco-lab.com. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at bizofgive and at facebook.com slash businessofgiving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. The Roosevelt Institute is a progressive American think tank which exists to carry forward the legacy and values of Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. And to better understand the role that such an institution plays in American society, as well as the policies and recommendations it is advocating for. It is a pleasure to have with us their president and CEO, Felicia Wong. Good evening, Felicia, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. The Roosevelt Institute was created in 1987. How did this all come together? Well, the Roosevelt Institute, as we currently know it, was incorporated in the 1980s. But actually, Franklin Roosevelt Mm -hmm. started in organization to support the FDR Library, which is up in Hyde Park. Very beautiful. If you haven't visited, you really should. Um, and so in, even in the late 1930s, uh, the president recognized both the need for presidential libraries. He also started the National Archives. Mm-hmm. And he knew that you'd need some kind of philanthropic support for that. So in some way, shape, or form, an entity dedicated to preserving and forwarding the values of Franklin and Eleanor has existed for 75 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the late 1980s, it became clear to the Roosevelt board, including Anna Eleanor Roosevelt, our board chair, uh, FDR and ER's granddaughter, became clear that you know there was a need to make ro- the Rooseveltian ideas and ideals real 
for today. So two things ended up coming together uh, by actually the 90s and early aughts. One is uh, the Roosevelt Student Network. We actually run the largest student policy network in the country. We work uh, at about on about 150 campuses in over 40 states, helping young people learn to do policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other idea is, wow, we, you know, the world needs another think tank. <laughs> Let's have a think tank that's really dedicated to forwarding the ideals of Franklin and Eleanor. So now we do all three of those things. There you go. Um, let's pick up on Think Tank because I don't think they're all that well understood. What do you, Felicia, see as the appropriate role of a think tank in American society? You know, think tanks fill really important gaps in both the development and the transmission of ideas from pure thinkers, pure academicians, to the public. Um, think about how um, our major American institutions are structured. Policymakers right now, they spend most of their time, you know, actually campaigning for office, staying in office, or you probably know this from your own life, spending all day in meetings, mm-hmm. trying to build alliances. That really means they don't have a tremendous amount of time to look at all the data, to think hard about, hmm, what would be the best way to increase wages or to, you know, close the racial wealth gap or any of the kinds of things that we work on at the Roosevelt Institute. There just isn't enough time in most politicians' days to do that. So um, they often rely on think tanks to really get some of those ideas um, that they can then utilize, uh, you know, in the service of their own kind of lawmaking and public interest. Now, you could ask, why wouldn't a university do that, right? Universities are full of people who are thinkers. But actually, most academics spend their time writing for other academics, trying to get tenure, uh, and teaching. All very important things to do, but that doesn't really mean that they have a more public audience. So think tanks fill that gap between universities and the public and public policymakers. Yeah, sounds a little bit like your career, because I know you were thinking of becoming the former and decided in order to be able to reach a lot more people, it might be better to become the latter. And reaching a lot more people, with all the stakeholders you have, who do you consider to be your primary audience? Right. Um, Yeah, I was an academic. (laughs) And I think my academic training is actually really useful for running a think tank now, Mm -hmm. which we can get into. Uh, But at any rate, you know, we have a couple of different audiences. One, as I'd indicated before, is policymakers. I think policy policymakers, especially now, are really hungry for big ideas. They want to understand what the best ways are to move the needle on things that they really care about. Um, and, and so we talk to policymakers. We talk to presidential candidates. We also spend a tremendous amount of time with our policy staffers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one audience. The other audience really is the media. You know, we're here talking today because the Roosevelt Institute is actually a small organization. You know, we're about $10 million annually, which we can get into. But for a think tank, that's really not very mm-hmm. big. That means we don't have, a, you know, an enormous PR shop. We don't do a lot of branding and marketing. We don't kind of go direct to consumer, as it were. Um, but there are a few people in the media who are really interested in the kinds of work that we do, whether it's, you know, economics reporters, political reporters, radio show hosts who are interested (laughs) in philanthropy or who are interested in, you know, politics or business. And so these folks are trying to understand what's going on. And they like talking to me. They like talking to our fellows and our academics and our students to try to understand more uh, about the ideas that are really driving the contemporary political conversation. Yeah. So you have a very targeted approach. We do. Well, let's turn to a couple of the issues. And I know you have said, Felicia, that we do not have the right policies to address poverty because we don't have the right analysis of what's wrong. What would your analysis be? Right. Well, let's start with what's wrong and then let's go okay. to what I think is right. Um, you know, for decades, uh, many analysts have had the idea that poverty is caused by um, some kind of educational deficit or skills deficit in individuals who are poor. You know, the reason people can't save enough money or the reason people uh, don't have enough assets is because they don't know how to do those things or they haven't acquired um, the educational level it takes uh, to become middle class or to become wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, as it turns out, the data really shows that this simply is not accurate. People aren't 
poor because they don't know how to save money. People are poor because we live in an economic system whereby, and you've seen this increasingly both in the research and now we see it in the political conversation, but people are poor because our economic system is actually structured to drive a kind of inequality where business executives and uh, others who are at the top of our economic structure take home more and more, save more and more, and become increasingly wealthy. Um, And that leaves far less for people in the middle or at the bottom. So one easy statistic to look at in this regard is that 30 years ago, the average CEO to worker pay ratio, you know, how much money a CEO would take home relative to his kind of median worker, was about 30 to 1. Now it's about 350 to 1. Mm -hmm. You don't see the economy having grown at that level, but you do see people at the top taking home much more. Um, And that's how you know that something is wrong with our economic system. It's not the fault of people who are poor or struggling or who lack economic security. It's actually, we we have structured our system incorrectly. Now, the good news there is that there are ways to structure the system better so that we do actually have an economy that works for more people. Yeah. And there are more people. You know, it's funny how poverty is almost becoming, I shouldn't say this maybe, but an anachronism because it isn't really the people who are the poorest. It really is the entire middle class. I mean, it has just gotten wider and wider and broader, and that's where I think all the angst is coming from right now. Right. I think that's right. And, you know, uh, we talk we, – we used to talk in 2011, 2012, we talked a lot about uh, the Occupy movement as mm-hmm. really having started Right down something. here, as a matter of fact. Right, right, right around the corner, <laughs> yeah. Zuccotti Park, right? Um, and then you sometimes saw people say, oh, well, Occupy really didn't do anything. I actually fundamentally disagree with that. Occupy put the idea of inequality and the relationship between, as I said, the top of the economy and the rest of the economy really put that concept uh, – on the map made it made it much more uh, popular to think not popular but uh, made it much more commonplace to think about how our economy worked as a system and as you recall that one percent we are the ninety nine percent they are the one percent that kind of meme um, that's now something that you see in uh, our political conversation every day and I trace a lot of that back to Occupy I have to say I also trace a lot of it back to the kinds of think tank and academic work that people at Roosevelt mm-hmm. and other similar organizations do um, but you know this is this was also something that was in the ether because I think the public actually understands this in many ways far better than uh, people who are uh, elected officials yeah I would certainly agree with you on Occupy Um it's funny how we make a determination as to whether something is successful or not immediately after it ends. And because they didn't have an agenda of what they wanted, it was considered to be a failure. But you really have to look at these things over the course of a number of years and recognize, well, this is the impact that it had. Right. And as you said, it really did change the conversation. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, the Roosevelt Institute has been advocating for new rules for the 21st century to deal with this enormous wealth gap in the country, among other challenges. What are those new rules? Well, the first piece of our new rules agenda is really just a recognition about how our economy is structured. You know, since about the 1980s, we have uh, labored under this set of ideas that the free market is the best and that um, market answers and private sector solutions are going to actually do the best for more, for the most people economically. Mm-hmm. Um, that implies that you shouldn't have uh, st- that you don't have structures and rules in a market. And as it turns out, that is simply not true. Of course, our markets are structured by rules. And about five years ago, the Roosevelt Institute started to argue that we needed to rewrite the rules of the American economy because there's always somebody who's writing the rules. The question is, are you going to write the rules to benefit more of us or to benefit fewer of us? Mm -hmm. So most recently, we put out a report um, called New Rules for the 21st Century that actually argued that you needed three things to make better rules in our economy. The first thing you needed to do was to recognize that corporate power um, can be quite extractive and too much corporate power, too few uh, corporations having too much power can really harm wages. It can harm, it obviously can harm prices. Um, And so one of the things you need to do is to curb corporate power. 
The second thing you need to do, we call it like a one-two punch. Mm -hmm. The first punch is curbing corporate power. The second punch is really reinvesting in public power. That means government. It goes right back to FDR, of course. Yes, it does. But we should be looking at direct public investment for some of our biggest economic and political challenges. That means climate change. That means health care. Um, there are many ways in which government actually can do a better job in solving social these kinds of social problems uh, than the private markets. And so that's the second punch, relooking and re-empowering the public. And finally, the third thing is we need to make sure we're doing this. This is especially important in an increasingly multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy. We must do this for a broader polity. We must do this for more people, not fewer. It is not okay uh, to say that we recognize that corporate power can be problematic and that we need more empowerment of people. If you're doing that in a way that uh, really is only for a very small, very limited number of people, particularly only for white Americans. That is just not okay. And you do see some political figures right now making that argument. I will say that that is morally wrong and it's economically wrong. Let me revisit punch number one mm -hmm. because recently the Business Roundtable, and that's some 200 CEOs, uh, issued a statement with a new definition of the purpose of a corporation. And it is no longer exclusively, first and foremost, to serve the shareholders and maximize profit, but also now to invest in employees and deliver values and to deal ethically and a number of other of those goals. What do you make of that? Do you think it's a sincere statement or do you think it might be a little bit more PR than anything else? You know, I think that what the Business Roundtable has done could be a really important shift in how we think about our economy being structured. Um, this idea of shareholder value, um, the idea that the only goal of a corporation is to actually deliver economic value to the people who own pieces of the company. You can trace this back to Milton Friedman right, in the 1970s, you're right, uh, famous New York Times Magazine mm -hmm. piece. Um, and, you know, as it turns out, this argument um, has yielded um, the kind of very slow growth, low wage economy that we are suffering under today. And I think we're suffering under this for political reasons, as it, politically as well as economically. Um, so I think the fact that the business roundtable has, has said that what they want to do is invest for, yes, for shareholders, but longer term. And they also want to uh, make sure that they're, quote, investing in workers and investing in uh, the larger community. This could be really important. Mm -hmm. However. However. <laughs> the question is really whether they're going to put their money where their mouths are um, and really whether they're going to put their power behind the kinds of rules and regulations that we already see. Many of these ideas have been developed by my colleagues at the Roosevelt Institute. There are things that these CEOs could do right now, could agree to right now, that would actually create more of a stakeholder economy instead of a shareholder economy. And we, did, we have yet to see those kinds of specifics from these CEOs. So, um, well, What's your take? What do you think is going to happen? I would be very surprised to see uh, these CEOs, financial, uh, CEO, financial corporation CEOs, tech CEOs, really voluntarily agree to the kinds of regulation, the kinds of wage increases, you know, the kinds of uh, boardroom governance that some political candidates are calling for that really would fundamentally shift power in the way that uh, companies are run. You know, one of the ideas out there is something called co-determination. Yeah. It's the idea that workers should be able to either serve on corporate boards or they should be able to elect representatives to corporate boards. This is a very big idea. Actually, Senator Elizabeth Warren has proposed this in her Accountable Capitalism Act that 40 percent of the people who serve on board should be elected by employees. If you really saw uh, corporate CEOs agreeing to that kind of decision-making sharing, it's a kind of democratization of voice in the workplace. If you really started to see that, um, then I would say that the business roundtable would, in fact, uh, be practicing what it preaches. But we will see. We will see. Yeah, it's funny how it is also a very limited definition of what makes a country successful. 
because we've lived in a world of GDP. So it doesn't surprise me that corporation looks at the economic health of, an org of a country, and that's the way we rate them. And now you're seeing countries like New Zealand saying, no, 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 that's a factor. <laughs> but it's one of ten, and we have to think about the health of society, of which this is just one of the determinants. Right. And, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot about the Powell Memo, which mm -hmm. uh, Lewis Powell wrote in 1972, where he actually argued that one of the things that the country needed at that time, as you recall, is hugely chaotic period of time. You had uh, already at that point suspicions about Richard Nixon. Ultimately, that became uh, the Watergate investigation. You had Vietnam. You had the free speech movement. You had a tremendous amount of chaos in the country between 1968 and 1973-74. Anyway, at that point in time, uh, uh, Lewis Powell wrote the Powell Memo arguing that, you know, what we really needed was better CEOs, um, you know, more uh, responsible corporate governance rather than, you know, these crazy kids protesting at Berkeley. Um, and that was going – more CEO more CEO power was going to actually uh, combat the kind of radicalism that Powell feared in the country. Now, interestingly, what the Powell memo ended up leading to was this kind of Milton Friedman-esque mm -hmm. uh, uh, stakeholder, sorry, shareholder primacy that the Business Roundtable is now fighting against. So I would be quite suspicious, actually, um, about saying that CEOs are going to solve their own problems. I think, as I said earlier, I think that uh, government. government is going to have to do a lot mm -hmm. to make sure that that happens. In addition to what you just mentioned about Elizabeth Warren, is there any proposal that a presidential candidate has offered up that is particularly in line with what the Roosevelt Institute advocates for? And is there one that no one has suggested that you would love to see put on the agenda? You know, I think you have to look at the, all the new tax policies that are out there right now. You see wealth taxes, which, again, Senator Warren has put forward. Senator Sanders has also talked about certain kinds of wealth taxes. Um, and I think you also have to look at really increasing income taxes. And you further have to look at ways to close the international corporate tax loopholes that um, drive literally trillions of dollars every year offshore um, and out of the uh, sort of American, out of American revenues. So um, I think you have to look at fundamentally rethinking our tax structure. You need to be able to say that raising taxes is good because it's going to raise more revenue to do the kinds of things we need to do publicly. You also need to be able to say that raising taxes is actually good for growth mm -hmm. and good for our democracy. This is not just about redistributing money. This is actually about making sure that the people who are value creators, namely middle class workers, get money into their own hands um, and so can drive growth. And then finally, I think that Part of uh, taxing wealth is actually taxing away a kind of increasingly calcified or, uh, oligarchy. Mm -hmm. um, so you got to look at the tax structure, and it's not, you know, the conservative movement in the 1970s was really built on a low-tax orthodoxy. I think we have to turn that on its head if we want to actually uh, increase prosperity for all. So that's one big piece that I think uh, we ought to be looking at and that I'm actually very excited about. Um, something that we haven't yet seen on the presidential agenda um, that I'd really like to see is this idea that big public investment um, to fight our biggest international, national and international challenges. Climate is the most obvious example. Um, is actually good, f excuse me, is actually good for our economy. Um, so Jay Inslee, another presidential candidate, right. uh, put out a $9 trillion climate plan, did a lot of work to show how you could actually drive job growth in impoverished regions of the country if you started investing in green infrastructure. The thing we haven't heard yet is the analysis that my colleagues at the Roosevelt Institute have put out, which is, you know, actually using public money to pay for that kind of investment is a smart move. It will actually be better for our economy. Um, we should not be uh, trapped by a kind of climate austerity, which is like we recognize finally that climate change is a real problem, but we feel 
that we cannot pay for uh, big new investments. The macroeconomic conditions, including but not exclusively, but including low interest rates, actually suggest that we can afford to pay for. we can't afford to pay for the kinds of investments that many candidates, including uh, Governor Inslee, are promoting. Turning to philanthropy for a moment, do you see foundations taking a different approach to some of the topics they've been working on for the past five or ten years? I do. You know, uh, philanthropies for a very long time, especially philanthropies that support what we do, policy making, mm-hmm. et cetera, policy development. You know, they'd been working kind of in issue silos. Let's work on wage issues. Let's work on health care issues. Let's, you know, let's work on issues of the caring economy. And what we're actually starting to see now is a move towards uh, actually promoting the idea that what we do need is a new economic worldview. I know you talked to Mike Kubzanski um, a month or so ago, mm-hmm. and he really talked about this, the idea that both Omidyar and the Hewlett Foundation are looking at promoting a post-neoliberal, meaning really a post-Milton Friedman, post-Friedrich Hayek worldview, um, and that if you're going to do it, that is incredibly important because all of these issues, whether it's climate or wages or taxation or corporate governance, actually fit within a worldview that says that, in my worldview, um, we need more public power and more government power. And in order to do that, you actually need to think differently about how um, our economy ought to be structured. Let's talk about mega philanthropy. Uh, you know, they have these mega philanthropists have come under significant scrutiny. Sometimes people believe they're using their money to cover up the way they made their money. There's probably nobody more obvious than that than the Sacklers, as one example. But also, they're having undue influence on a particular field because of the weight of their contribution. And in so many of these cases, this is all tax deductible. So we're all in part paying for it. What's your take on that? Well, obviously, you see extremely rich philanthropists uh, on both sides of the political aisle. I find it more admirable uh, when you see mega donors supporting things that are actually against their economic interests. So I think that is one way to ask whether people are actually using their philanthropic contributions to create you know, a better society, more public good, mm-hmm. versus not. Are they using their money in self-interested ways? Uh, But that's not really the only measure. I would say more broadly, um, in a democracy, you need more power from workers. You need more power from individual people. And that means more voice in people's day-to-day kind of economic decisions. I talked earlier about, you know, workplace democracy. So um, I do think that many wealthy donors are doing great good in the world. I think that many are not doing good in the world. (laughs) But regardless, we don't want a world that's essentially governed by the whims of extra political, non-democratic, small d Mm -hmm. um, donors. Yeah. Well, let's um, talk about workplace. What's a corporate culture like at the Roosevelt Institute? And why do you think it's such a special place to work? Well, I think Roosevelt's a great place to work. But of course, I'm the CEO. So you should probably (laughs) ask the last person we hired. Um, But Uh, That being said, I do think it's special for three reasons. Uh, The first has to do with our commitment to um, real communication and transparency. We bring a lot of different kinds of people together at Roosevelt. We have uh, intellectuals and academics. We have people whose job it is to uh, reach out to senators' offices, so Chuck Schumer and Chris Coons, and we have people whose job it is to do the finance and the accounting and the Mm -hmm. development work. Those are really different kinds of people. Very much so. So even at a small organization, you have to really be committed to bringing the kinds of people who are thinkers, the kinds of people who are relationship builders, and the kinds of people who are kind of green eyeshades focused on the operations and the money. You have to work hard to bring them all together. Um, I definitely have an open door policy and I try to make sure that we have at least monthly conversations with our staff um, where people can pretty much ask 
and report out and answer anything they want. So that's that's one big piece. The other big piece actually has to do with how we bring new people on. We actually we many of our staff are quite young. Mm-hmm. We run this student network, so of course many of the people who run that student network actually were you know last year they were college students themselves. So onboarding is really important, and one of the reasons that's important is that you can commit to racial and gender and ethnic and religious diversity as we do in our hiring practices. It's very important for us to bring on people who are diverse. Um, But if you're really going to include them, you have to make sure that everybody kind of understands the workplace culture in the same way. So, you know, everything from like, how does the coffee maker work to could you really just knock on Felicia's door and ask her a question to like, oh, what do I, how do I understand how money is spent here? Mm-hmm. All of those kinds of things you need to kind of establish a common onboarding system for everybody that actually allows people who may have come from less advantaged backgrounds, the same kind of access to information and ultimately to power as everybody else in the shop. Um, so that is really the another very important thing that we do. Um, so I think, I guess these are both ways of thinking about uh, transparency and communication, um, but I think they're both really important. Well, a big part of your job is to persuade other people. You have a very clear worldview at the Roosevelt Institute, and what you try to do is convince others uh, about that. And usually telling people that, hey, look at these facts, I'm right and you're wrong, doesn't work. So how do you think about trying to persuade other people to come around to some of uh, the thinking of the of the Institute? Um, well, actually, trying to persuade people that what we are arguing for, which is a better economy for Mm -hmm. more people, is less difficult than you would think, Uh, in part because, you know, the new data is very clear that almost all people who vote as Democrats, we are a 501c3 with a small 501c4, Mm -hmm. which I'm happy to talk about. But anyway, most people who vote as Democrats actually agree with the kind of progressive economic policies that we are putting forward. That's great. Not only that, one in five Republicans, about 20 percent of all people who vote Republican also agree with these policies, as do something like 70 percent of all independents. So I actually think that our ideas are popular. Now, the fact that they are not yet fully in power speaks to a political problem. But in terms of persuading people, um, I think that when I go out there and tell people what we stand for when presidential candidates go out there and tell people, uh, say, have ideas, articulate ideas that sound more or less like the Roosevelt worldview, you mostly get people nodding along. Now, that being said, um, I do think you you have to appeal to uh, more than just that to – to really get more people on your side. There's a couple things I try to do. Um, One is to actually talk – very explicitly about morals and values. You know, there is a view of freedom that we at the Roosevelt Institute have, freedom and dignity, but let's just talk about freedom for a second, that we at the Roosevelt Institute have that goes right back to FDR's four freedoms, right? Freedom from want, freedom from fear, freedom of speech, freedom of worship. These four freedoms really have to go together. Um, And we talk especially about freedom from what no person is really free when he or she doesn't, you know, have enough money in the bank to pay for an unexpected $400 expense. You know, you got a flat tire and suddenly you are really uh, in huge economic crisis. That's right. So, you know, that this kind of Rooseveltian notion of freedom is quite appealing obviously, to sort of left millennials who might already be on our side. But when I talk about it in that way, that's also pretty appealing to older people who remember Franklin and Eleanor, remember what they stood for. um, And, you know, understand. then they'll say, oh, yes, there was a time in which we actually felt the government had our back, that we had a president who listened to us. And that was directly connected to a kind kind of New Deal policymaking. Um, that we could bring back today and even improve on. So I think there are ways to appeal to people's data, you know, kind of need for the facts and to people's emotions and even to people's um, – the kinds of people they think of as heroes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
and sometimes a little sense of nostalgia goes a long way well, in getting people yes, to come that, around. That is true. Let's make sure that that nostalgia is utilized in ways that uh, push us forward and not only backward. Um, but that's something that we're trying to do at the Roosevelt Institute. Well, Felicia, <clears throat> let me say it again. Well, Felicia Wong, President and CEO of the Roosevelt Institute, thanks so much for being here this evening. For listeners who are interested in this work, tell us a little bit about your website and some of the information that they can find on it. Sure. Well, if you'd like to learn more about our work at the Roosevelt Institute, you can go to www.rooseveltinstitute.org. We've got all our policy papers there. We've got shorter pieces if you don't really feel like reading an 80-page analysis of the current political economy. (laughs) Um, And uh, we've got a way that you can actually donate as well. We'd really appreciate that. Thanks, Felicia. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. And that is this week's show. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And do come back next Sunday evening for The Business of Giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of The Business of Giving. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.